Well, I brought with me this morning one of my prized possessions. It's what's referred to as a premium Bible that was a very kind, thoughtful, generous gift that someone in our church gave me a while back, and I keep it in a special spot in my home office, and I treat it with great care, and I love to look at it and to, to feel it and to smell it, the leather, genuine leather, and I would be bummed out if the goat skin got stained or the blue gilding got scratched or the pages got creased, even if it was just one. And I think if it got damaged in any way, the slightest way, I'm not sure I would want to use it anymore. It would feel spoiled in some way and probably consider getting another one. And the first time I watched that video... I thought of this Bible, and I was ashamed and convicted to consider that I love the materials that this Bible is made of more than I love the contents of it itself. Rebecca's love for her burnt Bible should cause all of us to cherish our Bibles more deeply. Uh, We take our Bibles for granted, I think, here in the U.S., most of us have multiple Bibles. I could go into all of, our, all of your homes, like you could come into my home and probably collect 10, 15 Bibles. Just, they're just everywhere that we've collected over the years. And Rebecca can't go online and order a new one from Amazon like we can so easily do. And so her story, I think, should inspire us when it comes to our relationship with our Bibles, which are the portal into God's presence as we open them every day and read, we, we commune with God. I think it should also cause us to want to pray for Rebecca and the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in places where they're persecuted for their commitment to Christ. Rebecca lives in Nigeria Not sure what you know about Nigeria other than it's in Africa, but it's the most populous country in Africa, and it's number seven on the Open Doors World Watch List, which is a list that they come up with every year to track the top 50 50 countries where it's most difficult to follow Jesus. We've grown accustomed to hearing in the news about the Boko Haram, which is an Islamic terrorist organization uh, based in northeastern Nigeria, and this group whose goal is to overthrow the government and create an Islamic state, we hear about Sharia law, that's what they want. Um, They're notorious for being brutally violent. They're considered one of the world's deadliest terror groups. And this is a shocking statistic that over 200 million people live in Nigeria. 200 million people live in that one country in Africa. And just under half of those are professing Christians who are targeted by the Boko Haram in their efforts to eliminate Christianity from their country. They don't want any, anything about Christianity in their entire country. Almost every day, Open Doors receives a report of an attack or kidnapping in Nigeria. Violence has become so uh, frequent there 
so widespread that on average, every two hours, a Nigerian Christian is murdered for their faith. Which means that one or two of our Nigerian brothers or sisters in Christ will be killed while we're here this morning at church. You may remember in the news back in May, the story of Deborah Samuel. She was a 19-year-old Nigerian college student who was stoned to death and her body was set on fire by a mob of, of Muslim classmates. This was all caught on video. They videotaped it and it went viral on the internet. And what happened was that she had been asked on their class group chat how she had passed the exams that apparently were very difficult. And she simply responded with one word, Jesus, which infuriated her Muslim classmates, and they demanded that she take that post down, and she refused. And so they ganged up on her and stoned her to death and set her on fire. As Christians living in the United States, we have never experienced anything like that. This kind of suffering and persecution is, is foreign to us. And so consequently, we have a hard time relating to what our fellow believers in other parts of the world have to go through. And frankly, for some of us, it's a whole lot easier to not even try to relate. I'm, not, I'm just not even going to go there. I'm just going to ignore it and try to forget about it and just kind of maintain my nice, comfortable, sheltered life. Well, I think the first thing we need to recognize and and grapple with is that God is sovereign. We know that. But he's sovereign over persecution and suffering. God is sovereign over persecution and suffering. In other words, God is sovereignly ordained for some Christians to live in places where they must frequently endure pain and suffering while others of us enjoy peace and freedom of religion. We shouldn't sit here and feel guilty that we live in America and not Nigeria. That's the sovereignty of God. God doesn't call all of us to suffer in the same way, but he does call those of us who don't suffer to sympathize with those who do. That word sympathize, according to Webster's dictionary, means to share or to understand the feelings or ideas of another. It's the ability to enter into another person's situation, to to feel what they feel. It's pity or compassion expressed for another person's trouble or suffering. Sympathize. I think this is the best word that I can come up with to describe the way the Bible says Christians should respond to fellow Christians who are facing suffering and persecution. And I'm referring specifically to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. And I just want to look at one verse this morning and just talk about how it relates to us and what application we can make from this verse in light of the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Hebrews 13, verse 3, says this. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them 
and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Chapter 13 of Hebrews is obviously the last chapter. It's kind of a catch-all kind of conclusion to this letter written to Hebrew Christians. And the writer begins this last chapter with a, a quick list of some practical exhortations about the graces that, that we as Christians should be developing in our lives. He begins with love in verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. And then in verse 2, he talks about hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this time, uh, for by this, by this, excuse me, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And then thirdly, he addresses this idea of sympathy or this quality of, of sympathy. In verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. These prisoners that he's referring to are not people who are in jail because of some criminal offense. These are not cons, if you will, convicts. Um, that, that oftentimes this verse, the first thing we read this verse, the first thing that comes to our mind is prison ministry, which, which by the way is a very legitimate, necessary ministry. In fact, we have a ministry here at Lakeside we support called Right Way Prison Ministry. It's a Bible correspondence course and a number of you are involved grading tests and, and discipling and, and sharing the gospel with people, with inmates uh, in the federal prison system here in, in, in the state of Texas and surrounding states. And, and, and we should be ministering to those people who are uh, suffering the consequences uh, of their sinful choices. Um, But that's not who the writer of Hebrews had in mind here. These prisoners were those who were in prison for their faith in Christ. They're those people that we've been learning about in Peter who, who are suffering for doing what's right, not what's wrong. And they're in contrast here to strangers in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In other words, strangers seek us, us out for help. On the other hand, we must seek out prisoners to offer them whatever help we can. I think these prisoners are described in more detail back in chapter 10. Turn back there just a page perhaps in your Bible there, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Again, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So apparently these Hebrew Christians, these these Christians who had converted from Judaism, uh, experienced suffering and persecution as a result of the decision to follow Christ. Even one thing mentioned here, they, they had their property seized, they lost their homes, they lost their possessions. And we know that prisoners in the first century were not well treated. They were totally dependent on other believers for their survival to get any kind of food, any kind of clothing, any sort of encouragement. And sadly, sometimes people in those days would withhold help 
for fear of identifying themselves with a prisoner because they might end up in jail themselves. And I think we can all relate to that tendency to avoid being associated with those who are, who are suffering or, or being persecuted or maybe just perhaps being minimized. We, we don't want to endure the embarrassment or the shame of being associated with them. Paul understood this dynamic in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He was writing from a Mamertine prison, which was an underground prison cell in Rome awaiting execution, and he wrote this final letter to his young disciple Timothy, who he was going to hand the baton off of ministry to, and he said in first, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, apparently two well-known guys who were probably co-laborers with Christ, or co-laborers uh, with Paul companions in Christ who, for some reason, turned away from him when he got arrested and was imprisoned. But notice the contrast in verse 16. He said, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So he was commending Onesiphorus for not avoiding him, but actually going out of his way to find him so he could minister to him and care for him. In other words, Paul wasn't out of, out of sight, out of mind. Oh, where's Paul? Well, he's down in that. Well, out of sight, out of mind. I'm going to move on and do my own thing. No, Onesiphorus was there for Paul. And Paul did ask the believers that he wrote letters to, for example, in the church um, of Colossae, he wrote at the end of Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, remember my imprisonment. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that same thing, remember the prisoners. And that word remember there is, is a present imperative. In other words, it's a command uh, to do something not once or even once in a while, but always, constantly, constantly, be constantly remembering. We should be calling to mind the, the, the persecuted church on a regular basis. I appreciate my wife every once in a while. I'll notice her when she's putting on her jewelry. Um, she'll slip on this little rubber um, bracelet that looks like a barbed wire fence. And she wears that sometimes just to remind herself of the persecuted church. It's a little prayer reminder. And it's also a, a perspective keeper. <laughs> no matter what you're enduring that day in your life, sometimes you look down and go, oh man, I am such a whiner. I've got nothing to complain about. In light of what I know my brothers and sisters in Christ are enduring all over the world. And so we're to remember, and you've got to figure out ways to help you remember. Little reminders, little cues to keep these folks on your minds on a regular basis. And, and, and it's more than just calling them to mind, but it's, it's doing something for them. It's acting on that remembrance. And in fact... Um, Earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, 
the writer was quoting Psalm 8. This is um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? In other words, when you consider the heavens and the, uh, how vast the universe is, why would the Lord think of us? Why would he remember us? Why would he even give us the time of day? We're so puny and finite compared to the vast universe. But the Lord did remember us. And, and he didn't just sit up in heaven thinking about us and thinking sad thoughts about us and, and, and oh, look at those poor creatures and they're, they're shackled by sin and they're living, if you will, in prison, uh, in prison to their lusts and um, their desire, sinful desires. No, his, his thinking about us resulted in him doing something and he met our needs. How did he meet our needs? Well, he became one of us. He left his throne in heaven and came down and identified with us and lived on this sin-cursed earth and died a death he didn't deserve to die to meet our need. So we're to remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, as though in prison with them. In other words, we're to act like we're chained right next to them in the same cell. In other words, put yourself in their position. John Calvin said it this way, there's nothing that can give us a deeper feeling of compassion than to put ourselves in the place of those who are afflicted. Another translation of this verse reads like this, don't forget about those in prison, suffer with them as though you were there yourself. Share the sorrow of those being mistreated as though you feel their pain in your own bodies. We use that expression from time to time, I feel your pain. Sometimes we use it kind of sarcastically, sometimes we use it seriously, what does that mean? I, I feel your pain. What, what we're saying is I, I know what that feels like. I've experienced the same thing. I can relate to that. I've been there, done that. I feel your pain. The problem with empathizing, though, with persecuted believers is we really can't relate. We, we've never experienced what they experienced. We, we don't know what it feels like. And that's why I appreciate what Kent Hughes and his comments on this verse said. He wrote this, we are to labor at an imaginative sympathy through the power of God. We must will to be empathetic, to be imaginative, imaginatively sympathetic. It's an interesting little phrase. Imaginatively sympathetic. I think what he's getting at is that we need to try to imagine what it would be like, what it would feel like to lose our job, not because the company had to make some layoffs, but because of your commitment to Christ, they said, you're gone. We don't want any Christians working here for us. Or to have your family disown you, to, to act like you don't exist Or to have our children kidnapped 
literally stolen away from us. Or our church building destroyed. Standing around watching the smoke rise from the ashes. What would that be like? Or seeing your pastor arrested, literally dragged from the pulpit on a Sunday morning and thrown into jail. Or to be beaten or burned or raped or have a gun pointed at your head and told you need to renounce Christ or you'll die. I don't want to sensationalize this whole thing or emotionalize it, but this might help us as we try to imagine this, this um, imaginative sympathy. So, so let me just share some true life scenarios. If you're a parent, Imagine, it's been months since you've seen your 14-year-old daughter. The haunting memory of her screams still keeps you awake at night. You slip into the kitchen and pull out the certificates once again, the only communication concerning your daughter since she was kidnapped from your home by members of a local Islamic fundamentalist group. You glance at the papers for the millionth time. One is a certificate of conversion to Islam, the other a marriage certificate, both arranged against her will. You have pleaded your case to the police many times, but in their eyes, these certificates justify the kidnapping and rape. You remember your daughter's smiling face as she's joyfully talked of Jesus. You know the certificates are shams, but the man who kidnapped your girl is a prominent Muslim who was angry because she had witnessed to his daughter about Jesus. True story. Man, how about this? Imagine... The cell is cold and dark. You attempt to sing as you shiver uncontrollably. The guards don't like it, but what can they do? They've already put you in solitary confinement. They've already beaten you and given you mind-altering drugs. For more than two years, you've been in in and out of solitary confinement, in and out of the infirmary, infirmary, that is, when they allow you to be treated. Chronic medical problems plague you, yet you try to be at peace knowing you're in this cell for the sake of the gospel. You long to see your wife and children, but they are rarely permitted to visit. As you begin to cough, you wonder if you'll survive the final two years of your sentence. True story. Ladies, how about this? Imagine you're sitting in a living room having a small group Bible study with some fellow Christian gals in your village, and suddenly the front door is kicked open. And police burst in the house and they tell you that, they're, that you're breaking the law and you have to break up the meeting immediately. And as you get up to leave, one of the policemen grabs your Bible and throws it on the floor and he demands every one of you spit on the Bible on your way out or you'll be shot to death. Several of the others quickly spit on the Bible and run out of the house. Now it's your turn. And you kneel down and pick up the Bible and wipe off the spit with your skirt and ask God to forgive those who spit on his holy word. And the last sound you hear is the gunshot. I know our teenagers are already in their uh, student center this morning, but if you are a teenager here, 
I know our students love to go to camp. It's a highlight of the year for them. So imagine if you're a teenager sitting in one of the sessions at Revive or, or Regen and a group of Islamic zealots throw rocks through the windows of the meeting room and barge in firing their AK-47s in the air and one of the soldiers picks up a piece of broken glass and presses it against your stomach and demands that you renounce your faith in Jesus Christ or he'll cut you wide open. What would you do? And maybe the children that are here this morning, there may be a few in this service. Think about this, kids. Imagine this. One day at school, your teacher assigns a special game instead of homework. She says, if your parents have a black book that they read together at night, you're to find it and secretly bring it to school the next day, and you're really excited about the game because your teacher promises to give you a prize if you find that black book. And so you return to school the next day with your parents' black book, and you get a brand new toy, and you can't wait to go home and show your parents. And so after school, you run into the house shouting, Mommy, Daddy! But to your dismay, they are nowhere to be found because they've been taken to prison for owning a Bible. And you never see them again. I'll include myself in this imaginative sympathy Imagine preaching one Sunday and an unruly mob carrying rocks and clubs around the church. It doesn't take long for the mob to ransack everything in sight. They tie you up with steel wire and put a hood over your head and take you outside and strip you naked. Attackers beat you, burn you with their cigarettes and roll you through the broken glass from the shattered church windows. They finally knock you unconscious. When you come to, your attackers are throwing shattered furniture on top of you. You begin to choke on the smoke as flames emerge around you. Somehow you escape the fire and you're tied to a pole stoned and left to die. True story. All true stories, by the way. I didn't make these stories up. They're actual incidents that have taken place in our world in recent years. This is some of the ill treatment that our brothers and sisters experience. And that's why the Bible says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them as those and those who are ill-treated. And again, the historical context of this was obviously the first century, and we've talked about some of the persecution that first century believers have had to endure as we've been uh, studying uh, First Peter together. But let me just remind you, and this is uh, a paragraph I'll, I'll never forget reading, describing what it was like to be a Christian in the first century, particularly under the reign of Nero. Christians under Nero were tortured and put to death in some of the most horrific ways imaginable. Some of them were crucified. Others were dipped in pitch and hung on poles. The poles were, going to, were placed in specially prepared holes in Nero's garden. These Christians were ignited as torches to illuminate the orgies that would go on underneath their burning bodies. Some believers were wrapped in wild animal skins, torn apart by dogs, still others were fed to starving lions in front of crowded amphitheaters. They were gladiator toys who were ripped limb from limb before the cheering crowds in the Roman Colosseum. That's the context here of the mistreatment that was perhaps on the mind of the author of Hebrews. But notice what he says here. 
Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. He gives the reason why we should remember them because we ourselves are in the body. Now this could be interpreted in one of two ways. He could have meant because you're a part of the body of Christ. In other words, you're part of the, the spiritual body of Christ, and this would be in line with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul loved that analogy of the human body to describe the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 26, he says this, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In other words, our body is a package deal, right? When when, when one body part suffers, the rest of the body suffers. You, you can't ignore it. You walk you know, through your bedroom and you hit your big toe on the foot of your bed. You can't just say, well, sorry that you're the big toe. Um, no, the whole body is affected and, 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 and everything, everything focuses on that toe. To, to minister to that toe, to help that toe heal and feel better. So that could be the idea here is that, hey, we're part of the body. So we, we, this, is, this is like we're being persecuted along with them. We, we feel their pain. Or it could be the physical body that you, listen, you, you got it. We all got a physical body. We, we're not immune to pain and suffering. We understand what pain feels like. We, we know what it feels like to get burned by accident at least uh, or to have a cut or a scrape or how painful that can be at times, or to feel lonely and depressed, or that gnawing hunger in our stomach. Um, We've all faced some hardship of some kind, even though we haven't experienced these things to the same degree, um, they should make us more sensitive and sympathetic to those who are experiencing these things on a much higher level. And the reality of it is that that all of us have the potential to experience similar treatment. Any one of us at any time could be called by God to suffer in the same way they are. And if and when we do, we will be grateful if there's someone there to minister to us and comfort us and provide for us. Matthew seven twelve: treat others like you want them to treat you. In other words, sympathize with them like you would want them to sympathize with you if you were in that position. And again, this is a, a Christ-like trait. Hebrews 4.15, you're familiar with this. We're in the same book, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot, what? Sympathize with our weaknesses. So we have an opportunity to follow the example of our sympathetic high priest who is the ultimate model of, of sympathy. He felt our pain, literally. He felt our pain for us. Well, the last thing I want to happen this morning is for all of us just to go away guilty, feeling guilty, and as soon as the guilt wears off, we forget about what we've seen and heard today. We need to remember our persecuted brothers and sisters, not just on IDOP Sunday, but every day. And I think there's some practical ways that we can do that. 
There's just some simple things we can do to apply the message to, to come alongside the persecuted church. That's what we're being asked to do here by God in his word, to just come alongside the persecuted church, sympathize along with them. So number one, stay informed. Just, just stay informed. I mean, you, you're on the web, I guarantee, looking at things that interest you, researching, learning about, staying up with your favorite sports team or whatever you do that excites you there. You're, you're, you're on the web, you're looking. Well, listen, persecution.com, opendoors.org, two very helpful websites that um, uh, you can learn a lot. Uh, this this um, was very helpful for me just to look around those sites and to, to, to just see what's going on and to, to hear these stories. And um, another thing you could do is just grab one of these pamphlets we have in the back. We've got them on the back table. If you didn't see them yet, you can grab one on your way out. And what this is, this is from the Voice of the Martyrs, I Commit to Pray. And it's a way to, um, uh, it gives you the resources to get this free, uh, you get a free global prayer guide which goes through all the different nations of the world, um, which is a very practical help uh, for prayer. Um, it's also a way that you can get on the mailing list for this uh, monthly magazine. I don't know how many of you get, guys get this. I would recommend everybody gets this. We get this, comes to our home every week, and I mean every month, and you know, you just kind of thumb through it, and it's, it's amazing just to read the stories of what is going on with our brothers and sisters, and I'm looking at the pictures of these, these people all over the world going, I'm gonna be in heaven with that person. And, and they are enduring all sorts of persecution. So you can get a copy of this. In fact, we have some of these available on the back. If you've never seen one, grab one of these. This is the 50th anniversary edition. And so it has a special pull-out map, which is really cool. You just unstaple it, put it up on the wall somewhere. And uh, it just kind of helps you visualize the world. And it, it highlights the countries that are restricted, where Christianity is restricted, where um, uh, countries that are hostile to Christianity. Uh, it's just a great kind of prayer guide as well. So I encourage you to subscribe to this little uh, monthly magazine. If nothing else, it's a monthly reminder. Um, this also has a little bookmark you can tear out and put in your Bible because that's the second thing. Um, and, and, and it's basically what it has. It's a, it's a little prayer guide, 10 ways to pray for the persecuted church. And so that's the second thing you can do is just just pray for them. When it, when it comes to uh, what they need most, if you ask a persecuted Christian, they've, they've surveyed these Christians, and what, what do you need most? And they always say, pray, please pray for us. And so add them to your prayer list. Just add them to whatever journal or however your, your, your um, you know, prayer habits, you know, um, just add them into the mix. Uh, we've tried to keep them in front of us by putting a little thing on the wall, our mission wall, the persecuted church out there in the hallway across from the resource center. We have the persecuted church there. Again, just to be a visual reminder to be praying. So, so educate yourself, uh, stay informed, pray. And then thirdly, um, donate money for Bibles. And this is very practical. You can go um, on uh, either of these websites. Um, I think you saw vombibles.com was what they put up there on the screen. Uh, open doors, you can do the same thing, but you can donate for six bucks, you can donate a Bible. And they'll make sure that the Rebecca's in Nigeria and all over 
the country, all over the world, um, where it's hard for a, a persecuted believer to, number one, get a Bible, and number, number two, keep a Bible, because they're not confiscated. Um, what, what a practical way um, to, to invest in the persecuted church. So just go online, and you'll see, I, I, I'm going to commit to, I'm just going to do a one-time gift. Or I'm going to set up a monthly subscription for 25 bucks a month, and I'm going to know that I'm going to be able to provide, you know, maybe five Bibles a month to to uh, some some Christians. I know some of you guys give to missions, and that could be a new addition to your mission giving. Uh, is is through the persecuted church. As I was exploring uh, Open Doors website, uh, you know, Open Doors was started by a brother Andrew, and um, this past September. Uh, he went home to be with the Lord just like two months ago. And most of us know about him and uh, know about the persecuted church through his international best-selling book called God's Smuggler. How many of you guys read God's Smuggler? Published when I was, when I, the, the year I was born, 1967, I remember sitting in a Christian bookstore waiting for my mom to do her shopping and I was sitting on the, sitting on the ground reading the comic book version of God's Smuggler and was just, mesmerized by this story of this, of this radical um, Dutch missionary who in 1955 went on a short-term missions trip to Poland and he found out that there were Christians behind the Iron Curtain and they didn't have Bibles. And his heart was burdened by that and so he was determined to serve the body of Christ, not just in Poland but in all these closed countries and uh, get Bibles into them. So he had to smuggle them in across the you know, the, the checkpoints. And, and so uh, he tells a story about how he was in line for a checkpoint, I think going into Romania, and the cars in front of him were getting searched for 45 minutes, and they were taking everything out of the cars to examine everything going in. Uh, and, and he was sitting there going, Lord, there's no way they're not going to notice I got boxed full of the Bibles in, in the car. And so he decided, I'm going to put God to the test. And he took some of the Bibles out of the box and laid them out on the seats. So it was very clear what he had. He wasn't hiding anything. And then he prayed, Lord, you can open blind eyes. I want you to close. Op- I want you to blind open eyes. And so he would pull up to the checkpoint and they would look at his paperwork. They'd look at his car and they'd send him through in just minutes. And he said he never lost one of those Bibles going across those uh, checkpoints, just trusting the Lord, putting God to the test. And through him and his ministry, Open Doors, millions, literally millions of Bibles have been smuggled into the parts of this world where Bibles are illegal. And in fact, I was talking to one of my sons after, he's like, Dad, that was really convicting, that was really compelling. I said, well, you know, but you can, you can go on Voice of the Martyrs website and you can sign up to, to, to go on a short-term trip, volunteer to smuggle Bibles somewhere. We may never see you again, but it's nice knowing you, brother. We'll see you in heaven, right? But, I mean, if you're into it, right, why not? So Brother, in, brother Andrew's an inspiration uh, should be to all of us. And, again, if you want to know more about him, you can go on the Open Doors website. They've got a nice tribute video that they just came up with uh, for, for his memorial service, I'm sure, and a, a story, you know, tells his story, his timeline. It's very fascinating. So uh, I encourage you to, again, just take advantage of these resources that we have Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this morning. While it's hard to grapple with the, the level of persecution that, that other Christians have to experience in other parts of the world, we don't understand why we're here and 
not there. And Lord, but uh, we know you're sovereign in all of this and you've given us a, a, a tremendous opportunity to relate to them, to sympathize with them and, and to serve them through prayer and through making sure they have Bibles. And so I, I just pray, Lord, we're all at different places and, and, and are able to do certain things, different things. Would you just work in each individual heart here today and uh, stir us up to be more radical for Jesus and uh, more committed to the body of Christ worldwide, that we wouldn't just be Montgomery Christians, we'd be world Christians. And uh, Lord, that you would just stir up a movement in this church to want to really um, own this this, this uh, need uh, within the body of Christ. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.